Thank you. Thanks for your giving. A little bit of a heads up. The kids left early today because we want them to come back in and join us in our worship time, particularly as we light the Advent candle, as we uh, participate in communion. So that's a heads up because normally when the kids return, it's everything's over, right? And uh, But this time, the kids are going to come and join in and uh, participate, continue to participate. So that's your cue. Even if your kids are crazy, just it's okay because somebody here is going to be worshiping even more crazy than they, right? So it's all right. We'll just continue to worship together as the kids come back. So we're looking forward to that. You know, over the last few months, I have had a number of conversations with people that I, as I stood back and reflected, realized they were conversations about fear. Now, I think, if I'm right, a number of you have had these same conversations. Maybe all of you have had variations on this conversation over the last few months. I've heard people in conversation express fear about ISIS, about the crisis that's going on in northern Iraq and in Syria, and the effects of that militant group as they affect the lives of many. I've heard people express fear of that. I've heard fear from people as they've discussed or talked about the refugee crisis. Whether it had to do with what's going on over there, whether it had to do with Canada, the U.S. bringing refugees, whatever it was, I heard fear in the conversation about that. I heard fear in the conversation that led up to our Canadian election. You know, I mean, it was fear of all kinds. There was fear if Mulcair got in, fear if Trudeau got in, fear if Harper got in back in. There was fear if Harper lost, fear if Trudeau lost, fear if Mulcair, it was fear everywhere. And I think you probably heard those kind of conversations too. I've heard fear about, about the economy and the way things are going and the effects that that's having. I've, I've heard fear about the environment, concern about uh, things that are happening in the world. Those are kind of at a global level, but they made it down into everyday conversations that I had, frankly, with some of you, but others, maybe in coffee shops, you've experienced that same thing, maybe at work, maybe you've seen that happening around you. But also, I've heard conversations, or been part of conversations, that fear was in it because people were talking about some of their personal struggles. Maybe they were expressing fear about their own economy, their own finances. I heard people express fear about things that were going on in their family. Maybe it was uh, their struggle in their marriage. Maybe it was a, a worry or a fear over a child. A concern that something was, was going on. I heard fear expressed as people talked about health issues. Health, their own health. Maybe the onset of cancer again. Maybe an ongoing struggle with depression. Maybe a, a need or a particular challenge that's been facing you or facing them in terms of their health, the health of their children. And I heard people express fear about the future. Fear about what's going to happen. Fear about um, personally what's going to happen, what's going to happen to us, what's going to happen in the future. These are the kind of conversations, I've been part of a lot of different conversations, but I was surprised as I stood back to realize how many times I've bumped into some kind of fear 
in the conversations that I've been having. And behind that fear, I heard a question. A question that was something, maybe not articulated this way exactly, but it was something to the effect of, what in the world is God doing anyway? I mean, is God doing anything at all? For some of us, you know, if there is a God and if he's good, then why isn't he doing something about the stuff that's going on? Not only out there, but in my own life. Doesn't he realize the struggles I've been having? I mean, has he, has he lost it somehow? Is the universe spinning out of his control? Are we just fooling ourselves when we say that there is a God and that he's working out a, a good plan? Is that just a kind of a, a wish? Or a pipe dream? Because look around, you know, that, that's kind of how we... Look around. Things don't look very good to me. The world doesn't look like it's going anywhere. It looks more like the wheels are coming off. At least that's how it looks from where I sit. This is what I hear people say. Do you feel like that? Have you felt like that? Or perhaps you've heard that from others. God, where are you? God, can't you see what's going on? I mean, have you seen the evil that people are doing to one another? Have you seen the violence? Have you seen the tragedy? Have you heard the threats and seen the oppressions and just the senselessness of it all? Have you seen what's going on in my life? God, are you there? I hear this question. You might be asking this question. This might be, you know, and I know for some of you, You you, you kind of ask that question and then you tell yourself, no, I shouldn't even be asking that question. I shouldn't even be having those thoughts. But let's be honest, at the end of the day or the end of the week or the middle of the night or after a long day, that might be a question that you're asking. And if you aren't asking that question, then you've got to know something. Many people are. Many of your friends are. Your family. People that you bump into. People that you work with. It might not be a question they're able to articulate all the time, but I think it's at the heart of a lot of the fear that they carry. But I think if you dig even deeper into that question, where is God? I think you come right to the the heart of the question, the root of the question, which I think is this. Is there any hope at all? Is there any hope? I mean, things are bad, but will they get better? Life is rough, but is there somehow a purpose behind it all? Is this, is this going somewhere? You know, evil does seem powerful, but will good win out in the end? Is there any hope at all? I think that sits at the very basis of the questions we ask about where is God in the world and the fear that we express. Is there hope? I think it's the central question that many people are asking today. But it's not a new question. People have been asking this question for a long time. Especially when things were rough. And they wondered if there was ever going to be a better day. It's the question that many have asked down through history. And it's actually the central question that the book of Revelation was written to answer. Especially the central question that it was given for. 
to a people who were struggling. To the, These churches we've heard about, if you've been traveling through Revelation for a while now, these churches uh, in, in, the, um, in what is modern Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, they received this letter 1900 years ago, and they were facing brutal oppression. They were facing incredible devastation because they had been faithful to Jesus, and they were wondering, really, if there was any future left for them at all. Been abused by religion. Their whole families were suffering. Their whole church was suffering for their faithfulness to Jesus. And when they looked around them, these small little groups of, of Christians, when they looked around them, what did they see? When they looked out on their street, when they looked down in their marketplace, when they, when they heard about the scene that was going on in the larger political world, what did they see? They saw evil winning the day. That's what they saw. Chaos was rising. To use the words that we'll see later in Revelation, the, the beastly empire of Rome was grinding the followers of the Lamb into the dirt. That's what was happening. And these Christians looked at the struggle, they looked at the, the daily challenges and the brutal realities they were facing as followers of Jesus, and they wondered, God, do you see what's going on? Are you aware? Are you there? Have you forgotten us? Will you do something to, to help us? Or language that we hear later, will you do something to, to vindicate us, to, to show us that we haven't just been faithful for nothing? Is there any hope? And it's into these families, into the reality of these Christians' lives, into the middle of these churches who were suffering under these, this oppressive and wicked regime, that Jesus speaks his hope through this revelation. How does Jesus do this? How does he speak it for them? How does he do it for us today? He does it by pulling back the curtain. We had a curtain sitting over there, didn't we? For a long time, it made way for the tree. But look at this curtain. Was that anybody? Who did? Dale, was that you? There's a curtain over here now, and it looks a lot better than the one I made over there. So Jesus, the meaning of apocalypse is he pulls back the curtain to reveal something to us. He pulls back the curtain, yes, to show us who he is. That's primary. And we're going to be seeing that all through the Revelation. Jesus is showing himself to us. But he also shows us who we are. And we've talked a bit about that. But then... Pulling back this curtain, hear this carefully, because this is super important for the rest of Revelation. He also shows us what is truly going on in the world around us. He pulls back the curtain to help us see true reality, because when we look around, we see evil winning the day. We see violence continually being perpetuated. We we see a, a story that doesn't seem to have any hope. And so Jesus pulls back the curtain to enable us to truly see from God's perspective what is actually happening around us. So that we can live in hope. So that we can live courageously and faithfully in the midst of struggle. That's what Revelation was written for. We begin a new section in Revelation today. For eight weeks now, we've been hearing Jesus' words to seven individual churches. The whole letter of Revelation was written to these seven churches, but there at the start of this longer letter, 
Jesus personalizes a message to each one of these churches who are hearing the whole letter. After giving these personalized messages, um, John is now given a whole new perspective. There's a transition that happens in the book of Revelation, and it's designed specifically to encourage these seven churches, these Christians, and us, by extension, as we listen. Anyone who hears this letter, that even when things seem dark and overwhelming, there's hope. He pulls back the curtain to show us that there is a God and he is on the throne. So we want to hear the revelation of Jesus Christ. And today I'm going to ask you to do something different, something we haven't done. I hope you're okay with this. Um, if, if, if there's a physical uh, disability to stand, then just be seated. But I want to actually invite you, if you would stand as we hear this vision, to honor this vision of unparalleled grandeur that we receive from Revelation chapter 4. Here it is. After this, this is after he heard all these messages Jesus spoke. After this, I looked. And there before me was, which we know is look. It's the word look. So, after this, I looked and look. There was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And there before me was, or look, a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In your bulletins or your programs today, there is an insert that contains the chapter uh, that we just read, chapter 4, if you'd like to follow along. This is quite a vision. 
There's so much to see here. So many, let's be honest, weird images, different things going on, things that aren't your everyday life, images pulled in from everywhere. There's so much in this vision um, that draws from the larger story of God from all over the place, but particularly from a few key visions that a variety of prophets from the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, visions that they had had of God, and, and they're all sort of pulled in to this throne room vision. What is at the very center of this revelation, of this vision that John sees as he goes through the door of heaven? The very center is the throne. The throne is the most dominant image in the book of Revelation. A lot of people don't realize that. They don't realize when you think Revelation, one of the most important things you need to know is this image of the throne. It's mentioned all over the place. And it represents power. It represents kingly rule. It usually refers to God, but there'll be thrones in reference to other kingdoms as well. Everything in this vision is designed to highlight this reality. John wants us, as we have the curtain pulled back, as we look through this door, he wants us to see the throne. It's at the center of everything. I mean, did you uh, grammar junkies notice all the prepositions that John used to get us to focus on the throne? Did you see that? Let's go through some of them. First, we've got someone on the throne. Someone dazzling like the beauty of priceless gems. And this is the very central point of this chapter. So we're going to come back to it. But everything that flows from this, everything that follows, is intended to enhance this central truth that there's a throne in heaven and it's not empty. There's a throne in heaven and there's someone sitting on the throne. You could leave now. And if you walked away with that, it could change your life. But don't leave, because there's, there's more to come, okay? But, but that's it, okay? There's a throne in heaven, and someone is sitting on it. We will come back to that. In order to paint this majestic picture of this indescribable God, um, John doesn't try to tell us really anything more about the one who's sitting on the throne I- exactly. In, in kind of classic Old Testament style, he goes on to describe everything that's going on around the throne. First, there's this rainbow. It's kind of encompassing the throne. It's around the throne. It's, 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 it's encircling it. And it recalls for us the judgment and the covenant promise of the flood way back in Genesis, reminding us that because God is faithful, because God is holy, evil will be judged, which is good news if you're suffering under a regime of evil. Evil will be judged and God's grace will restore broken creation. That's central to the rainbow promise. And what's more, all around the throne, we see these 24 more thrones with 24 elders on them. This 24 elders business kind of draws from the people of God down through the ages we see this at the end of the story where the New Jerusalem is described and there's the two twelves are there making, making 24 But these 24 uh, represent the 12 tribes of Israel kind of standing in for the people of God before Jesus. And then the other 12 are taken for the apostles of the church and they stand in for the people of God after Jesus, together representing the whole people of God. These 24 beings have immense authority. And they're dressed in white and they're crowned in gold and they're all around the throne. Well, as if that isn't enough, 
A storm of power erupts from the throne as lightning flashes and rumbling rolls and thunder peals. This magnetic storm is reminiscent intentionally of the time when the people of God stood before Mount Sinai. Remember, uh, for those of you less familiar with the Bible, it's the time that the people of God got the Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments. They're standing in front of this mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and it's an electrifying storm representing the presence of God. And in the story, it follows right on the heels of God delivering His people out of Egypt, out from under a beastly empire that have been oppressing them and destroying them and murdering them. And having defeated their oppressive enemies, God now calls His people to live in covenant faithfulness to His way of life. That's what the Ten Commandments represents. God's desire to see a people that are whole and are related to one another in ways that lead to life and not to death. This storm from the throne declares His power and His presence. And we're going to see that storm show up again a number of times in the book of Revelation. But before the throne, someone else is present. John points out that there's seven lamps blazing, and we're explicitly told that these seven lamps are the seven spirits of God, something we've already seen referenced in the Revelation. And as with all the numbers in Revelation, these numbers are symbolic. Seven is symbolic, just like 24 is symbolic. And it helps us see the truth that the full and complete presence of God's Spirit is there before the throne. The same Spirit that is in the church is present before God and His throne. Are you beginning to get the picture here? Are you beginning to see what John wants us to see? But he's not done. Another thing John points out is that before the throne, there's a sea of glass. It's clear as crystal. Now, we might like the sea. How many of you like to travel and see the sea? Up to hear the crashing of the waves. Gary has some great snorkeling stories he could add, contribute to this right now. You'll have to get him to tell you a few after. Uh, he was wowing us at Connect Group the other night with some great snorkeling stories. Um, <laughs> I'll stop there. But he has got a great one. You've got to ask him about that one. Okay. Um, and so the sea is some beautiful image we have, and, and, and we love to visit it. But that's, that's kind of where we sit. That's our worldview. In the ancient worldview, the raging sea represented a place of chaos, a place of evil and difficulty. We'll even see later in the book of Revelation, one of the beasts emerges out of the sea. But here, before the throne, this occupied throne, with God sitting on it, the sea is as clear as glass without a ripple or a wave. What does that mean? How does this connect to a fearful people? We look through the door and we see that before the throne of God, chaos has no power. Do you hear that? Before the throne of God, evil has no voice. Violence has been silenced before the throne of God because God is the master of all. And where God is present, there is peace. Where God is present, the sea is as clear as crystal. There's hope in knowing that. There's hope that comes from seeing this. On the throne, around the throne, from the throne, before the throne. Is John done yet? 
No, from that kind of big view, John then zooms back in, because at the very center, around the throne again, it's kind of like he skipped over them and, and has now come back, there are these strange beings of marvelous grace and power, the four living creatures. One, it, it's a weird business, right? One has the face like a lion. But remember, he's all got wings and eyes everywhere, too. Another is like an ox, the face like an ox. One looks like a human, and the other is like a mighty eagle. These fantastic images, they're, they're straight out of a, I don't know, Tolkien novel, something? Straight out of Star Wars? Uh, they're, they're a combination of images from the past. They, they draw in visions that Isaiah had, visions that Ezekiel had, uh, pictures of angels from of old, and, and they represent creation in all its splendor. All the commentators say these four living creatures represent all of animate creation. And they surround the throne. They all have wings. Uh, they all have covered in eyes, which suggests their wisdom. But they're very different. They're very unique. And they represent the diversity and the beauty and the, the magnificence of all of God's creation. And they are praising God unceasingly. It's, what a vision, hey? What a vision. All these images, all these pictures, all these symbols, they're pulled together and designed for one purpose, to pull back the curtain so that we can see the throne and we'll see that that throne that's surrounded by these beings and these kings with the, with the big electrical storm happening, the full power and the presence of the Lord God Almighty, that that throne is not empty. Look, a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Do you see what a difference that makes? Think of the fears and the difficulties that these early Christians were facing. These seven churches. We know from the, from the letters, uh, from the messages that Jesus gave these individual churches that they're in, they're in different spots, right? Some are just being beaten down. Some are barely holding on. Uh, some have, have, have been deluded in who they are. And, and Jesus has pulled back the curtain to show them how they need to follow him in faithfulness and that this is going to mean suffering in their lives. Some of them have, have got sin they need to deal with. Some of them are struggling in poverty. Some are compromised. Some are fearing the future. And it's into these Christians' lives that they're given this beautiful picture of God on the throne. May the fears and difficulties or the uncertainties in your life, in the lives of maybe your family and your friends. And you and I can be tempted to think when we look around us, when we read the news, when we talk to our friends, even when we just examine our own lives, we can be tempted to think that, well, there might be a throne, but man, it's empty. There's no one on that throne. I mean, look around. God's not in control. The world is spinning out of control. There's no hope. At all. That's what we can feel before the curtains pull back. But then the curtains pull back and we're commanded to look. Look, a throne with someone sitting on it. And this changes everything. Through this revelation, um, Jesus gives us a whole new vision for what is really true. And what's really true in the world isn't the thrones of petty kings. Think of how that would have sounded for them. What's really true when the curtains pull back is not the state of the global economy. It's not the conflicts of nations. What's really true, what's ultimately true, what will be true in the end, is not the struggle in your marriage. It's not the difficulty you have at school. 
not even the loneliness that you experience each day. Those things are real. Those things are difficult. And they do affect our lives. But what Jesus wants us to know is that they are not the greatest reality of your life. They don't tell the whole story. And they certainly don't tell the end of the story. Look, a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. We need this vision. I need this vision. The world needs this vision. Jesus flings open the door of heaven and gives us an inside look so that God's true reality can change how we see our present reality. Really, this is actually very similar to a theme that we already saw earlier in Revelation. Do you remember the time right early in chapter 1 when when John is first confronted or first sees the vision of Jesus and it describes who he is and he, and, and just as, as all, we would, all of us would do the same thing, he just falls down like a dead man before Jesus. And Jesus reaches over and touches him with his right hand. Remember that? And what are the first words Jesus says to him? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he talks about who he is. I'm the living one. I was alive and I was dead. And, and now, Look! I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Remember that? And we talked about how there's these commands that go all the way through Revelation. The two central commands of Revelation are, don't be afraid. And what's the second one? Anyone? Look! And it's kind of hidden in translation as you saw it even in today's, where it says, there before me was. Uh, it's a shoddy translation. I'm sorry. It should be, look! It's just kind of awkward. This one probably reads better. But, you know, look and how we're told that in order to keep that first command to not be afraid, this is how Daryl Johnson puts it. He's one of the guys I follow, and, and I really like what he has to say here. He says, how we keep that first command to not be afraid is we obey the second one. We look. That if we will look, if we will look through the door, if we will look through the curtain, if we will look at our lives, if we will look at the world through God's perspective, then we will not be afraid. Don't we need this? Don't you need this? Don't the people you work with need this? The people you meet in the street, the people, the little people you tuck into bed at night, don't they need this? That life might be difficult, that you might be suffering, that things might be really rough right now, but that whatever is happening, here's the real truth. God is on His throne. And He is bigger, and He is greater, and He's stronger, and He's older. He's more holy and more good and more powerful than anything the world can throw at us, including death itself. And so we look. We look. Look, there's a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And as we look, and this is what happens in Revelation 4, as we look, something happens. As we look, our looking is transformed into worship. Because when you see all this imagery and all this splendor and you see these strange living creatures and these 24 elders and you see all the stuff that's going on, you start to imagine what it sounded like to be there. You have to ask, what's all this activity about? What's all the hubbub? What's that I hear? What's happening in this throne room? What is happening? It's worship. 
That's what's happening. I mean, he describes all this stuff around the throne room, but what's actually going on in this throne room of God, before this throne on, on which is someone seated, is a worship service. And, and we glance in, and, and it, he takes some time to describe it for us, but really, it's happening right off the bat that as we look into this throne room, we hear all of creation represented by these four living creatures, all of creation singing to the one who sits on the throne, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night, they never stop saying. That's representing all of creation, that all of creation gives this unceasing worship to the one who sits on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as if on cue, as we glance in the throne room and all this catches our attention and we see the the four living creatures singing this worship song, saying, extolling the holiness of the eternal God, as if on cue we see the elders giving the response of God's people. The response of the church, the church that we saw in one of the letters of Paul describes being seated in the heavenly places with Christ, this church, giving the voice of the redeemed. These elder kings get up off their thrones and they cast themselves before the one who sits on the throne. They throw their own crowns before him and they say, they join in. It's like a, it's like another part of the chorus say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. And as we look, as we see this happening, as we see all of creation and all of God's people worshiping, we realize that we're being caught up in this vision too, that we ourselves are being drawn into the mighty song, that that we become part of this never-ending worship service that is going on from eternity past to eternity future before the throne of God. And we join our voices with the voice of the church, with the chorus of all creation. And we sing, You are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That the throne is taken. It's not empty. That the Lord God Almighty, the Holy, the Eternal, our Creator King, that You are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our lives. You're, you're worthy of everything that would, would set us up as, as having anything at all. We see the image of them throwing their crowns, all of their authority, all of their gifts, all of their power are laid before the One who sits on the throne. And so we sing, we bow, we dance, we declare. And as we do that, our looking turns into worship. And I believe our fear transforms into hope. As we worship, we begin to take our eyes off our own fears, our own struggles. It doesn't mean they aren't real. It doesn't mean we don't still face them. But somehow our vision is now filled with this throne filled with the God who sits there, who is in control, and worshiping the true God, the one who sits on the throne, fills and informs and changes and transforms our vision of reality. What have we been, what have we to be afraid of? Terrorists? No. The Lord God Almighty sits in the throne. 
Do we need to fear the future? No. God is on the throne. He was and He is and He is to come. We don't need to be afraid. Do we need to worry that somehow God is not going to be faithful? That He's not going to see us through? That He's not going to complete what He started? No. You have created us. And by Your will, we are created and everything we have is a gift from You. And so we worship You who is worthy of all praise. I like to think it changes us from people who like to wring our hands to people who are willing to just raise them. Because that's the image I have for lots of us. We spend a lot of time wringing our hands in fear when God is calling us to raise our hands in worship. And as we do that, we're caught up into the true reality that there is a God who is on the throne and He isn't going anywhere. So we worship. We worship in hope. That hope is raised as God is praised. And that is just true in our lives. It's true in our community. Here on the first Sunday of Advent, which is the Sunday of hope, we celebrate, we look forward to the dawning of hope in Jesus. We worship the one who sits in the throne Because he has a son named Jesus. We worship the one who sits in the throne because he saw the chaos. He saw the evil. He saw the struggle of his creation. And he did not ignore our plight. He sent his son Jesus, born of a virgin Mary, born of the virgin Mary, to become one of us. So that he could defeat evil and sin and brokenness. And lead us back to the life that God intended. So what are we going to do? You know... Revelation 4, is, it's, 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 I debated this a long time. It really isn't complete without Revelation 5. So you really have to come back next week. Uh, it's not complete because in Revelation 5, we begin to realize that there's someone else on the throne. And it's a lamb that was slain. It's Jesus himself. That's all I'm going to say about next week. Mm-hmm. But for today, we recognize that we worship with the hope of Jesus. That whatever you fear today, the call is to look and to worship. Whatever you face tomorrow, the call is the same. To look and to worship. To just worship. That's the invitation. To join in on the song of all creation. To join in the song of the redeemed. The song of the church. To say there is a throne in heaven. There is someone sitting on it. And the one who's sitting on it is worthy of all our praise worthy of all our worship, worthy of anything we can give and more. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Through Advent in particular, we're we're going to worship as a response to what we've heard because I don't think it would be right to hear and be invited to worship and then just leave. And so we intentionally have built Advent this, uh, this season so that we will hear the revelation and then we will worship in response to it. So as we now worship, hear the words of the church. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. We're called to worship. To just worship. Because there's a throne in heaven. And look, someone's sitting on it. Let's worship together.
season of Advent. Advent means coming, and in this season we prepare for the coming of Christ. One of the ways we can celebrate Advent is by making an Advent wreath and lighting its candles to remind us of the gifts Christ brings to this world. The Advent wreath includes many symbols. The wreath is in the shape of a circle without beginning or ending. This reminds us that there is no beginning and ending to God. God's love and care for us never ends. The evergreen branches are a sign of ever new life. The candles tell us of the light which came into the world with Jesus Christ. The traditional colors of the Advent candles, three violet and one rose, are penitential penitential colors, (laughs) reminding us that we need God's help to be the people we are meant to be. The white candle, which we light on Christmas Eve, signifies the coming of Christ. Today, we light the first candle, the candle of hope. We had a backup. The people of Israel heard God's promise through the prophets. The prophet Isaiah spoke words of hope to Israel. He spoke of the coming of God's realm of shalom when all nations will walk in God's light. We too hope and pray for the world of peace and harmony. Hope is like a light shining in a dark place. With the lighting of this candle, we celebrate the hope of Israel and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And then do we have the everyone? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Do you have the everyone reading? Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> we continue to hope in God's promise that Christ will come again to fill our lives and the life of the world with love and joy and peace. Thank you, God, for the light of hope as we prepare for Christ's coming. Help us to share our hope with others.